And if you would please open your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, looking at the first 18 verses. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on pages 956 and 957. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. So in our study of 1 Corinthians, we're in this section between, verse, between chapters 8 and 10 that deals with the question of food sacrificed to idols whether it's okay for Christians to knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols. And there were some in the church, those were the the knowledgeable ones, who understood that the idol was nothing, and and they understood that there was only one God, there's no rival gods, so they figured that it was okay to eat this food. And they basically justified what they already wanted to do. The meat would have been been so prevalent in this city that, that not eating, if you weren't eating this meat, you would have clearly stood out. And the issue had actually been settled in the Council of Jerusalem, where, where, God, where the church on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit declared, and, and Paul confirms in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that knowingly eating meat sacrificed to an idol is not an option for Christians. But rather than coming right out and using his apostolic authority or the, the church's authority, Paul uses the situation to teach the Corinthians really the difference between their false, incomplete knowledge knowledge that leads to pride, knowledge that puffs them up, and a true loving knowledge that builds others up. And in chapter 8, Paul really skips the issue altogether of whether eating this meat is right or wrong by showing them a higher principle, that the the people should use their knowledge not to serve themselves, not to lead to pride, but rather their highest priority should be building others up in love. And Paul ends chapter 8 with the statement, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And in chapter 9, it's really an example. Paul is giving an example from himself and Barnabas how they have given up legitimate rights, how they've waived lawful obligations owed to them in order to advance the gospel, in order as to not place a stumbling block before the Corinthians, in order not to hinder the coming to faith or, or their growing in grace. So that's what we're going to be looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the God, the Lord. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple 
And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, that, Father, I will speak your truth. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here that we will have an encounter with you, that by the power of your Holy Spirit you will soften our hearts to hear from you, to see Christ. And, Father, I pray that each one of us will be changed by this encounter, more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, we are living in a day when everyone demands their rights. No one's going to tell me what to do. I have my rights. That's the American way. And we even see it in a church. If someone in a church says something we don't like, I'm out of here. I have my rights. Now, some of these rights that we claim, some of them are legitimate rights, but many are not. And what determines whether a right is legitimate or not? Well, what determines it is its source. From where does this right originate? See, many of our rights come from laws. Some of our rights come from cultural convention. Some of them are just the the cultural social consensus. Some we may even take by force. You know, might makes right. But whether these rights come from laws or conventions or consensus or, or even brute force, there is only one legitimate source of any of our rights, and that is God. God alone is the source of every single one of our rights. Our nation's founding fathers understood this source. As we read in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, which you all had to memorize in our civics class, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Endowed by their creator. See, God alone is the source of these rights. And these rights are legitimate. To deny these rights, whether done by by individuals or the states or corporations or institutions or the government, is a matter of injustice. And every Christian, every Christian should oppose injustice. And we should work for justice, biblical justice, not not social justice as as defined by, by certain atheistic ideologies, but true justice as defined by Scripture alone. And it's important for us as Christians to understand and to articulate these biblical rights, just as has been done in the the preamble, listing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But for the Christian, for the Christian, there are times when it's wise, when it's right for us to voluntarily forego one or several of these legitimate rights in order to achieve a higher purpose. Sometimes it's wise for us to forego our natural and legitimate rights. And it's important for us to understand this is not forced. This is not required. It's it's not unjust if a person decides not to forego these legitimate rights. But doing so can be wise. It can advance the gospel. It could display godly love for another person. 
It can glorify God. And in this, we can receive great joy. In doing this, we can boast. And it's not a, it's not a negative, prideful sense, but it's a, it's a positive sense of boasting where we find satisfaction, where we find joy in being used by God and by really imitating Christ by denying our rights for the good of others. And this is what we see in this passage. Paul chooses to forego his legitimate God-given rights for the advancement of the gospel. He chooses, or he does this, really to remove any barrier, any obstacle, anything that could hinder the Corinthians' faith. And this entire chapter is is an illustration, really, of this statement that Paul makes in in 8.13, where he says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is very clear that just because he gives up these rights does not mean that he denies the legitimacy of these rights. And Paul begins this passage really by asking a string of rhetorical questions. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And the answer is obvious to these questions. In fact, the Corinthians themselves are the answer to the question. Paul says in verse 1, are not you, meaning the Corinthians who he's writing to, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So there's no denying that Paul is an apostle. There's no denying that he has certain rights, that he has certain privileges by virtue of this office. And he lists these rights in the form of of additional rhetorical questions, asking about himself and Barnabas. Verse 4, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Meaning he's talking about just basic sustenance. Do I have the right to food? Do I have the right to water? That's what he's asking. In verse 5, he goes on, do do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Notice he says a believing wife. A non-believing wife, a non-believer is not an option for a Christian. In verse 6, Paul narrows the focus of these rights. Paul and Barnabas, as ministers of the gospel, they have the right to receive financial and physical support from the church that they serve, from the Corinthians. And really, this is the right of every single person. Every person who works has the right, a legitimate right, to receive compensation for this work. And Paul just grounds this really in some analogies that he gives us in, in verse 7. He grounds this really in, in, in common sense. And he gives these three analogies. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And the answer is obvious. No one does this. The answer is the workman deserves his wages. Common sense confirms that Paul has this right. But remember, common sense is not our ultimate source of our rights. Uh, not the ultimate source of these legitimate rights. Now, God often uses common sense, which is really a, an expression of his common grace. He uses his common sense to confirm these rights, but common sense is not the basis of these rights. As we've already said, the basis of these rights, the grounds, the source of these rights is God himself. And in verse 8, Paul says, do I say these things on human authority? Does he say, don't, don't just listen to me. He says, does not the law say the same? He says, don't take my word for it. Don't take human authority, take it on human authority. Let's look at Scripture. What's Scripture say? And that's what he does in verses 9 and 10. Paul gives the scriptural authority for these rights. He says in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then Paul basically expounds on what this verse says. He gives his Holy Spirit uh, commentary on this verse. He says, "Is Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And the real principle that we see here that Paul is getting at, basically the summary of this is what he gives in verse 11. In verse 11, we see the, the principle he's talking about. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul is basically showing that he has the right, because he is sowing, sowing these spiritual work, he has the right to physical compensation, physical support. So, so basically he's saying that this is not limited to physical compensation for physical work, but it also applies to doing spiritual work. And it's not only those who, who sow physical seed reap physical blessing, but also those who sow spiritual seed gets physical support, physical blessing. And Paul shows this in, in verse 13 by making the connection with the temple workers from the Old Testament. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now, some may reply saying, well, that, that was the Old Testament. That, that was the Levitical priest. This, this is what Nathan had read for us in our Old Testament reading. Paul is not working in the temple. Paul is not a priest. But in verse 14, Paul actually makes this connection between the Old Testament principle applying to the Levitical priests and to those in the New Testament who are proclaiming the gospel. And here Paul is not relying on his own authority, which would rather be kind of self-serving if, if you think about it. But rather Paul refers to a command of Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 14. In the same way the Lord... The Lord Jesus Christ commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And there's an interesting principle that we see here, really about God's provision for all of his people. And it's explicitly seen, I think, in the Old Testament tribes. But we also it also applies to believers today. And the principle is this. Our provision, no matter who we are, comes from God. Our provision, no matter what your job is, where you are, money you have in the bank, it comes from God. <clears throat> but it comes in different forms. As we see in Deuteronomy and in, in Joshua, and, and as Nathan read this morning, <clears throat> God provides directly for 11 tribes. And he does this by giving them land. And the people of the 11 tribes, they, they work this land, and through their work, the land produces an increase. It produces a harvest, and this takes care of their needs. But God gave them the land. God is providing for them through the land. Now, God also provides for the poor, maybe those who, for some reason, did not have their own land or lost their own land. And he provides for them through gleaning. See, the landowners, they were not permitted to harvest the entire crop. They had to leave the edges. Anything that they harvest that fell out, they could not go back and get. That was to be left for the poor. So that the poor could come and through their own efforts, through their own labor, they could sustain themselves through gleaning. But God had also set apart one tribe, the Levites. And the Levites were dedicated not to the physical. They weren't given physical land. They were dedicated to spiritual work. See, they were not... <clears throat> they were not to farm the, the, the land. They were to serve in the temple. They are to tend to the things of God. They were to teach the people about God. They were to teach about his ways. They were to lead the people in prayer. They were to lead the people in sacrifices on behalf of the people. And God doesn't provide the Levites with land to farm because they are not to be farmers. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't work. They still have work, but their work is spiritual, not physical. 
And they were supported by the tithe. They were supported by the first fruits of the other 11 tribes, the tribes that they were ministering to, the tribes that they were interceding for, that they were doing the sacrifices for, the prayers for, they were teaching. Now, sadly, <clears throat> as we saw recently in, in our study in the book of Judges, as well as in our Bible study in, in Malachi and other places, the people were disobedient to this command, and they neglected the support of the Levites. Really, they didn't place value on the, on the things of God. They didn't work, place value on the work of the Levites. They looked, they placed all their value on what they can see, what they can taste, the physical. And in Judges, we see the Levites, because the people are disobedient, they are forced to work the fields. They are forced to become mercenaries, basically hiring out as personal priests to rich patrons, as we, as we saw in, in the book of Judges. But when they do this, what happens? What happens when the, the Levites are, are forced to take physical jobs, either the farm or, or mercenaries, to support themselves? They're no longer doing the work that God gave them to do. They're no longer interceding for the people through sacrifices and through prayers on behalf of the entire nation. And what happens to the nation? Spiritual decline. They forget God. They forget the things of God. And as a result, they face divine judgment. My friends, the same is true for us now. This side of the cross. See, God is the, the ultimate source of all of our provision. Regardless of what it is, whatever your job is, God is the ultimate source. Now, God doesn't necessarily give out land today, but he gives out our talents. He gives out resources. He gives out opportunities. And all of this he gives to the bulk of his people. And this is the, the 11 tribes, so to speak. He gives them the ability to support themselves through their labor. And God also provides for the poor today, through the alms, through, through a portion of this blessing given to the church, given to the majority, is given to those who, for whatever reason, are poor and not able to, to, to support themselves. But God has also called a certain people, a certain people to the task of proclaiming the gospel. These are Christian workers and ministers and pastors and missionaries. They are to focus on the things of God. They are the modern-day Levites. They intercede for the people through prayer. They teach the people the ways of God, and they proclaim the gospel through preaching. And God provides for these people, just like he provides for the Levites. He provides for them through the tithe. But sadly, as, as God's people become indistinguishable from the surrounding culture, which we saw in Corinth, which we see in our own culture today, God's people no longer value spiritual things. God's people focus solely on the physical things. To the, to the fleshly person, the tithe is foolish. Why would I give money to something that I can't see when I could buy a car or a new boat with that money that I would give as a tithe? But if the person who is called to the things of God, the pastor, the missionary, the Christian worker, if that person then has to support themselves, he's not able to dedicate as much time to what God has called him to do. And he needs to spend time earning a living. And as a result, the people he's supposed to be ministering, interceding for, suffer. And this is what we see today. This is what the Corinthians saw. So this is the normal situation. This is the way God normally provides for all his people. But we see in this passage, what we see today in this passage is not normal. Paul here is, is dealing with a disobedient church, a worldly church, a church that doesn't understand its obligations a church that's more interested in its own comfort and its own indulgence than supporting the work of the gospel. 
And in this situation, Paul voluntarily decides to forego his legitimate rights for the sake of the gospel. He voluntarily decides to forego these rights in order not to place a stumbling block on the Corinthians. So Paul and Barnabas actually refuse any support from the Corinthians. And they support themselves. They support themselves literally as tent makers. That was their trade. They made and sold tents. So they supported themselves. Now a question is, was Paul and Barnabas, were they disobedient to Christ's command by, by supporting themselves and not making their living from the gospel as, as Christ said in verse 14? And some people suggest this is the case. But I think the overall principle that God is, is, is getting at here is that the man of God, <clears throat> the person who is, is called to focus full-time on the things of God and proclaim the gospel, he is to depend fully on God for his provision. As I said, every single one of us must look to God for our provision. But for the man of God, it, it's more clearly seen because they, they must rely on the voluntary tithes. See, every single one of us, whether you have skills that come from the Lord, you're relying on the Lord, but it's, it's a little less, it's, it's easier for us to think it comes from ourselves. For the man of God who is relying on the tithes coming in, it is very clear that God is providing for this person. So that's what we see here. And if, if a person is a, a, a bivocational ministry, and minister, and this is what I was for, for much, of my, of much of my ministry in my time as a ruling elder, what happens is it's easy for us to rely on ourselves for our support. And to tell the truth, this was the main reason why I resisted going to seminary, why I resisted going into full-time ministry. See, I didn't want to rely on other people for their tithes. I wanted to rely on myself. And it was basically an issue of pride. See, I wanted to stand above the, the people. I want to say, you need me. I'm giving you all this wisdom, but I don't need you. I've got my own job. I can support myself. So it's only a one-way street. You see how it leads to pride? It's like, I'm giving to you, but there's nothing that I need. I can provide for myself. But this attitude is not healthy. And this is not the way God has designed it. See, what God wants is for us to be mutually dependent. I'm not above the congregation. I'm not below the congregation. We both need each other in different ways. God has meant us to be interdependent on one another. And this is the normal way that God provides for the advancement of his kingdom. But occasionally... And in certain situations, God provides in other ways. And sometimes it's through tent making. And this is really the case for me during the early part of my ministry in, in Blacksburg. The Lord had given me a job at Virginia Tech that really could, could support our family, meet all of our financial needs, and didn't really require all of my mental energy. I had a lot of reserve. I had a lot of energy to do ministry. And I was still able to do a good job in the job that I had. And it was clear the Lord was providing this for at least a temporary part. Because then I went to my job in Radford, and I knew I couldn't do both. I had to make a decision. I had to say, either I was going to have to work full-time on this job and put all my energy into this, or if I wanted to become a minister, I had to go into that full-time. And that was the way the Lord got me, pushed me out of my comfort zone, and to go to seminary. So that's one way the Lord provides, through this tent making. But again, it's the Lord's provision. Another way the Lord provides for ministry is through the giving of other Christians. Other Christians who are not the direct recipients of the teaching and the ministry of the minister. And, for, and we see this for Paul. He was supported by the church in Philippi. So that the Philippians sent him support, and he took that support. And Paul, Paul was a missionary. And this method of support we see even today among missionaries and church planters. These are the people that, that they minister to. They're either not believers, they're taking the gospel to, or they don't have the resources to support the ministry they receive. 
So they must rely on other mature believers outside churches, basically a modern-day Philippians, to provide for this ministry. And we see this with our, with our friends, the Pitts, who we sent out from here to go to Uganda. The students that Jeremiah teaches, they don't have the resources to support a school, to actually pay for some of Jeremiah's caliber to teach them. So we here at Northgate, uh, along with other churches and other individuals, we provide that support so that the pits can live and, and, and provide the work that they are called to do. And Paul makes it clear about his rights. And this is the normal practice. But Paul, in his wisdom, realizes that exercising this right and taking support from the Corinthians would actually hinder the spread of the gospel, as Paul says in, in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the place of the gospel of Christ. And the reason Paul refuses support here is twofold. First, he didn't want them to think that Paul's in it only for the money, that he's a hireling, that, he, that he's doing this, this, this work of, of a religious peddler. And, and, and they were common in Corinth, just as they are common today. People whose only goal is to make a buck. Right? We see these people. Late night TV. You, know, you, you turn it on. Sow a seed. You sow a seed to my ministry and God will pay you back ten times. Or, or, or churches that say, you know, we'll give you a money back guarantee on your tithe. You tithe to us, we'll give you, we'll give you money back if, if God doesn't bless you tenfold. That's not, what, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul wants to make it clear. This is not his motivation. He's not in it for the money. He's not a snake oil salesman. He proclaims the gospel because the gospel is true. And more than that, he proclaims it because God has called him to proclaim the gospel. It's not for financial gain. So he wants to make it clear, I don't need anything from you. God has called me to do this, and I'm going to proclaim this gospel, and God will provide for me, and it will be to your shame, because he calls other churches to provide. That's what Paul is saying to him. The second reason Paul refuses support, because many of the Corinthians, there were many wealthy Corinthians, and they sought to use their wealth to control Paul, to control the message, to make them look good, to, to preach what they wanted to hear, not what Christ has told Paul to, to preach. And, and Paul's not a mercenary. He is not a mercenary. He is not a mouthpiece for the wealthy. He is a servant of Christ. We saw this in, in the, the, the Disney movie Pollyanna. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's an old movie. And there was this lady character, Aunt Polly. She is the richest uh, woman in the town, and she basically controlled the church. She would send notes to the, to the pastor saying, I think you should preach on this. This should be your topic. And the pastor was fear of upsetting this, this patron. He would say whatever she wanted to hear. But Paul would have none of that. Paul refuses to exercise his right as to not to put any obstacles in the way of the gospel. And in verse 15, Paul makes it clear that he's not saying this to guilt them or to manipulate them into giving him money. He says that he would rather die than to be deprived of of his grounds for boasting. And Paul explains this further in verses 16 and 17. Paul says that he must preach the gospel. He must preach the gospel. He has no choice. God has commanded him to preach. He says in verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Basically, he says woe is a divine curse. He's saying that he'll face God's wrath if he fails to preach the gospel. He has no choice. And he says in verse 17, he gets no reward for preaching the gospel because he is obligated by Christ himself to preach. In verse 18, he shows where he gets his reward. In a way, verse 18 is really like our gospel reading that Nathan read for us, where Jesus says that if you're forced to go one mile, go two miles, go the extra mile. See, we have no choice. If we're forced to go one mile, we've got to go one mile. We have no choice. 
But we are free to go that second mile. This is where we get the reward when we go the extra mile. And Paul is saying he has no choice but to preach the gospel. But he gets his reward by preaching it free of charge, by foregoing his legitimate rights to support from the Corinthians. This is Paul's extra mile. And in this, Paul can boast. And again, this is not a significant, a, a sinful, prideful boasting, but rather it is a joy that comes from suffering for Christ's sake, for suffering for the benefit of others. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? What, what does this mean to us as we're looking at it? Well, let's look at three or, or four brief applications on this. And the first application, which is really the application of every sermon that I preach here, this type of thinking, this foregoing our rights, this is completely absurd for an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, you're probably sleeping, probably not listening to me. But if you are awake, it makes no sense to you. Because this is only possible for a person who has been regenerated by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. A person who is a new creation. A person who has died to self and lives for Christ. It's only possible for that person. If anyone here today, anyone who hears my voice on, on the live stream or, or ten years from now listening on sermon audio, if you're not a believer, if you've not been born again, if you've not repented of your, your sins and received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone, his righteousness as our only hope of standing before a holy God, your only application of this sermon is to come to Christ. That's it. That's the only application. Come to Christ. To accept Christ's free gift. To pay the penalty for our sins. And, and he will give us his, his perfect righteousness so that we can then have the confidence, that we can stand before God and he will not be a, 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 an angry judge ready to send us to hell, but he will be a loving father, giving us mercy, giving us Christ's righteousness. Looking at us, he will see the beauty of his son, Jesus Christ. That is our only application. Again, if there are any here who are not believers and, and you want to talk more, talk to, to me or Nathan or Alex or Jack or, or, or one of the other elders or just talk to us and get some more information. But don't come to the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper will do you no good. This is only for believers. And when we do the Lord's Supper, it will uh, actually, as I read the institution from 1 Corinthians, it will actually bring judgment. It will actually harden you if you are not a believer. But if you are a believer, it will soften you. So that's the first application. If you're not a believer, come to Christ. And the application of every sermon that I preach. The second one, though, for Christians, for Christians, giving up our rights, this is not the same as denying our rights. And giving up our rights is something that is a voluntary decision. Someone can't do it for you. You have to do it personally. See, I can't decide to, for you to give up your rights. I can't say, Nathan, you've got to give up your rights. That would be unjust. That would be sinful. And related to this, I can't, I can't give up my rights and use that to guilt someone else. And say, all right, well, Nathan, I gave up my rights. Now you have to give up your rights. Again, that would be unjust. That would be sinful. It must be personal. It cannot be forced. And it's always done for a higher purpose. It's not done for our own glory. It's not that, that I want to brag, say, look at all these rights that I gave up. Look how great I am. No, not at all. It's not to get outward credit or glory. It's done for a higher cause. It's done to help someone else. It's done to advance the gospel. It's done to glorify God. <clears throat> so that's the second application. The third application is we need to remember that God is the ultimate source of our provision for every single one of us, and we are to trust him. We know that ultimately we can never outgive God. So if we feel called to voluntarily forego a legitimate right, we can trust that God has our back. He will provide what we need, when we need it. And Jesus tells us, do not worry. Do not worry about these outward needs. He says in Matthew 6, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. The Gentiles, these are unbelievers. These are people who do not know God. When you do that, you are acting like those who do not know God. 
The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God. As we sang Wednesday night, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So that's our third application. Our final application. As Christians, we have been given all things. We have given peace with God, and ultimately that is the only thing we need. We have been set free from the futility of life in a fallen world. We have been set free from fear of death and eternal judgment and the torments of hell. This is the greatest blessing. And really, there is nothing that we can give up now, nothing that we can suffer now that could ever compare to the amazing glory that each one of us in Christ are destined for. And because of this, we have the privilege, not the obligation, we have the privilege, an amazing privilege, to forego some of our legitimate rights that God's word offers to us for the advancement of the gospel, that God may be glorified, to be the instrument that God uses to bring another soul to eternal life. We are given this privilege. My friends, there is no greater privilege, no greater joy, no greater mission that we can have than this. And any temporary sacrifice that we make now, again, it's voluntary. It won't be punished if we don't do. But any temporary will bring us eternal joy, will bring us glory, will bring us a, a peace that is so far beyond anything we give up. In a small way, what we do is we imitate our Lord. Our Lord himself, who, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. He was obedient, becoming obedient to the point that that's even death on the cross. In Christ, by foregoing his legitimate rights, this is the only way that we can actually come, we can worship the Lord now, that we can come into his presence, that we as sinful fallen men can stand before a holy God because of what Christ did. And we, in just a small part, we can, we can imitate that. We get the privilege of imitating that to other people and be used to him. So that at the name of, of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we want to see. And that is what we can participate in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the rights that your word shows us. And we thank you, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can forego legitimate rights that we have for you, for your glory, to show others who you are. And, Father, we pray that you will lead us, even this week, lead each one of us to see how we can forego a right for someone else, to help someone else, to bless someone else, to let someone else see you, know who you are, experience the life transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope that any of us have. And we are your ambassadors. Father, this time is short that we have on this earth. We will spend all eternity in glory receiving unimaginable rewards. So, Father, I pray that while we are here, that we will focus on the task you have given us to be your ambassadors, to proclaim your gospel with every breath we have. I pray that for every single person who knows you who has been born again. We pray it for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.